Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Andrew Ward from Regen Farmers Mutual, and today I'm joined with Gabby Chan, and we're hoping to have a fantastic conversation uh, about a number of things, but all to do with regen agriculture, with environmental markets, and hopefully give us a bit of historical context to how we got here and maybe some predictions about where we're going to end up. So thank you very much for joining me, Gabby. How are you? I'm very well, and it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Um, I've been uh, reading or listening rather through Audible to your latest book, and it, it, it would be the equivalent of a page turner in that I keep listening to it over and over again, possibly because at night I fall asleep and I go, oh, I need to go back and get that. And so I've gone through it many, many times. And each time I do, there's another blinding flash of the obvious, uh, which has occurred as a result of listening to you. So um, with your permission, I'm going to share screen and I'm going to take some notes of our conversation and then hopefully some others can also come to understand the brilliance that, you know, resides between your ears. So uh, for those who haven't met you, and I've just talked you up and I know that's embarrassing. Oh, no, a lot of pressure. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, maybe you could provide some background uh, to people as to why, why we should be listening to Gabrielle Chan, who is she and how did she come to be in the position that she has opinions and insights that farmers would find valuable? Okay, so this is, I guess, a, an odd story in some ways. Um, I grew up in Sydney. Uh, my father is uh, a Chinese migrant from Singapore, uh, met my mum, uh, we grew up, we had a wholly suburban Sydney background. Uh, I didn't know any farmers. I didn't know anyone that lived in the country. I just uh, was completely contained in that Sydney world. I went into the media and started reporting as a journalist and then moved into political journalism. But about the same time as I moved into politics, I uh, fell in love with a farmer, which was not part of the plan. And, um, and so I ended up moving um, from the New South Wales Press Gallery to the National Press Gallery in Canberra. Uh, our farm is about 90 minutes west of Canberra. And so I continued my reporting um, after we got together. But increasingly, as we got married and had kids, uh, I was sort of um, straddling these two very different worlds. Uh, one was um, our local town, which is a town of Harden, Murrumburra. It's 2,000 people, probably 3,000 in the surrounding districts. Uh, and so I was having those conversations that you have in small towns, you know, um, revolving around community groups and people your kids go to school with and their political conversations were obviously diametrically opposed to the sort of issues that I was covering in Canberra um, in the press gallery and after a very fraught time um, in reporting on government probably from um 2013 to about 2017, we saw this rise of um, the hung parliaments. We saw in increasing numbers of independents and um, city journalists and city politicians were asking these questions about, you know, why is everyone so cranky with politics? You know, why are we seeing unpredictable patterns in formally safe regional and rural seats. And I thought it would be an interesting exercise to sit down and think about my experience in uh, living in the country for the previous um, 20 years and really pick apart what was causing that dislocation between country um, voters and uh, big politics, big party politics. And so I sat down to write um, Rusted Off. Uh, 
that was released in 2018. And the ag book, this uh, book, um, Why I Should Give a Fuck About Farming, really came out of that process. Right. Um, can you summarise, I know it's a whole book, but the, the concept of rusted off, I imagine to be the difference between farmers being rusted on to the National Party as their political champions, and then this experience from 2013 where they were actually really pissed off with the National Party and, and we saw safe seats like Orange uh, disappear to, I think it was Shooters and Fishers with a 17-point swing and things like that. Is that what rusted off refers to or have I got the ball by the udder? Yeah. Uh, no, it's it. That's that's right. Although the 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 um the rusting off process started probably earlier than that. You know, Australian politics has had this quite a stable system, quite a stable two party system, three parties if you count the two parties in in coalition, the Liberals and the Nats. Um, and the interesting thing to me was I started looking at the history of the National Party and the National Party formed as a loose coalition of farmers groups um, in the early 1900s. And the reason they got together was that they were pissed off and they were fed up at that stage and they thought that the um, the uh, what was then the earlier iteration of the Liberal Party and the Labor Party weren't serving the interests of country people, and they were, and so that the uh, these farmers groups got together and formed this country party, as it was known then. And very early on, they started thinking about, you know, what serves country people better? It, does it serve us better to be a, a party of government? that is in coalition with another party in government or does it serve us to be independents where we can free wheel and um, vote issue to issue? Now, history shows that the National Party decided it was best to try and be a party of government and that is to come together in this coalition with the Liberal Party. Uh, and that, that created a very kind of stable enduring partnership but as history has has come along and issues have changed and rural populations have dropped uh, I think the the changes really started happening in the 1980s where we see Australia open up to um, economic deregulation and all of those um, I guess those uh, truths of rural rural uh, economic structures um, around protection of agriculture, uh, a contract of sorts between city and country, given Australia's economy um, famously rode on the sheep's back. All of those things started breaking down and, and you had Hawke Keating going to this big reform, financial reform agenda, economic reform agenda, and then John Howard follows up. And I think, you know, country voters were, were thinking, oh, well, when John Howard gets into government, things will change back to the way it was. Well, John Howard doubled down. He deregulated further. He deregulated the, the dairy industry. And so people started questioning, you know, like, what, what's the go here? Why are all our economic structures changing? What, is, what does this mean for country people? And that's when you start um, seeing the independence coming in, the rusted off process beginning. You know, Pauline Hanson came into parliament um, in 1996, the year I moved to Harden, actually. Um, so that process had taken place for the whole time that I've been living here, really. And, and Australian politicians and commentators were really trying to work out why this was happening. And so I set out to try and contain this in the book that's now called Rusted Off, Why Country Australia is Fed Up. And, you know, I hope it sheds some light on the issues that uh, rural and regional people face living in smaller communities, uh, living in non-urban centres, 
and you know some of the service issues we see around health and education, the economic issues uh, around you know user pays services, telecommunications, all of these things stem from the question of how government is going to uh, deliver services for rural Australia and what it is we should expect and what it is we should maybe even do for ourselves. I find them really interesting questions about the way uh, country Australia um, deals in the modern kind of political system. I want to bring that uh, historical context specifically to sort of practices and um, environmental markets, if, if it's all right. So if I can start with practices. So 1996, you say, was Hanson and, and yeah. um, I mean, Dad and, and Brian Marshall got their training in 1993 and really started to introduce time-controlled grazing uh, which now is like a forerunner of, of with holistic management of, of regenerative agriculture. But was there any, uh, in terms of historical context, was there any impact in that change of viewing agriculture, the change of practices? Did that have any impact in the political spectrum early on or was it? Well, it did. If you think about land care, I think, has turned 30 this year. And land care was, you know, at the same time as this economic deregulation was happening under the Hawke-Keating government, um, Hawke starts to nationalise this concept of land care. I think, I think originally it starts in Victoria and then it's upsized by uh, Hawke uh, and he sets up the National Land Care Awards uh, from memory. And, and so you get this... Um, I guess a different way of looking at farms, you know, from an environmental perspective. And yes, there have always been, as you know, in your family, ways of looking at farms that are non, not all about economic production. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I think the land care movement, the success of the land care movement is really based around um, that kind of country culture of bringing together your friends and neighbours and doing things using your local knowledge and the hive mind of the community. And so th- that starts off a series of, of cells, environmental cells across the country. Now, um, I have, a, a, I guess, a particularly local view of land care because we have a land care that has been incredibly successful because, uh, partly because it's been driven by uh, a local person, Louise Houghton, who was a long-time land care officer for 35 years or so before, um, ironically, it was centralised and the position was taken to, um, to somewhere further away. Uh, but that, that, that kind of crossing of environmental care in a way, in a language that is palatable to farmers because you've got to get the kind of cultural speak right in order to um, talk about, you know, certain messages so that you're not, you know, we, we, we all know how politically uh, the National Party will talk about grainies and grain tape and all that sort of stuff. So you've got to get those messages right. But Landcare really got it right in terms of crossing the culture, the economic imperative of looking after your natural resources, the environmental imperative, um, the the farm ecosystem in a way that uh, I think farmers could understand and really get behind. And our local group has been very successful. It didn't work in all places. And I'm told Western Australia land care wasn't as um, successful as it was in the eastern states and those groups that might have started around land care have have sort of moved into more grower groups so more farm-based grower groups that you might see in um, you know on a field day as opposed to a you know local land care group 
But I think the, the benefit of all of those groups is they're kind of taking that local and regional knowledge and using it in a way that makes sense to those communities. And, and so that, that, I think, is the forerunner to really thinking about environmental services from a different perspective because those groups, those land care groups, were essentially paid government money for putting in trees along your creek or fencing off your creek or, or, or doing um, amelioration or, you know, whatever it is. That's the start of it, the environmental service payment um, that is the forerunner to environmental service markets in the private sense. Yeah, and, and um, I have a question about, you know, the deregulation in the East Coast, particularly of uh, wheat with the Australian Wheat Board and the the relative strength of CBH on the West Coast. And I wondered whether you had any thoughts as to how CBH uh, didn't deregulate, kept as a mutual, and, and as a result, it provides a you know fairly healthy dividend for its farmers. But at the same time, land care in WA isn't as strong as maybe on the East Coast. Is there a relationship there or is that just a coincidence? I've never thought that's a good question. I've never thought um, to put those two together, but I guess um, if your grower groups are stronger, then you know CBH is an expression of economic leverage um, that I think makes a lot of sense in a in a farming um, market that is is really. Uh, controlled or beholden to very large um, corporate players. And I've never understood why uh, farmers could trade away that leverage. I mean, as flawed as the Australian Wheat Board was, it at least gave you a kind of size to play with the big, big boys. Mm. Um, and in the end, the competition policy that drove that, you know, um, deregulation of, of things like the wheat board actually led to less competition because the wheat board was broken up and its component parts sold to even bigger players. And so, you know, you end up with um, fewer behemoths and 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 they're wielding more power. Uh, so... You know, I don't know much about the way CBH runs, um, but uh, I think it's a, it makes sense to aggregate. I mean, a bit what like what you guys are doing, um, you know, with the mutual. It's the idea that you aggregate and together you have more power than you do as an individual. Now, you know, I could probably, I wouldn't mind asking you a few questions about what, you know, the, the difficulties of that in a farming mindset that is very much about, you know, I am the kind of the, the um, boss of all I survey within my boundary fence and don't you dare come in and tell me what to do with it because there is that really, that really um, uh, palpable tension, I think, in farming culture that's, uh, you know, has a healthy sort of streak of oppositional defiance disorder, which is maybe why I fit into that so well. It's because I just like tell me to do something. No, I'm going to push back. But you know, if you suggest it, yeah, I'll come along with for the ride. Um, so yeah, I think it, that that is a really interesting uh, dynamic and and. If I were to suggest advice, I reckon those sorts of mutuals, those groups coming together is the way to deal in the modern economy where you're getting these massive trade disruptions that are reacting to politics and economic changes. Um, you know, you need a kind of measure of support and also information sharing. Um, more than any anything else, because now the farming that I see and that I wrote about in the book is really a function of uh, access to resources. And if you can't get access to resources, either to buy land or to 
buy knowledge, uh, to buy services, then it, you're really pushing it uphill, I think. Uh, uh, having listened to your book so much, I have to agree with you. I mean, there is this point uh, where you talk about the farmer is both the worker and the capitalist, and they have mm. to constantly reconcile these these two parts of themselves. Um, but economically, uh, they're they're an island, they're a minnow, and and how do they affect? supply chains that are dictating prices, governments which are dictating regulations, markets where their market power individually is a, you know, piss in the ocean. So uh, totally agree that, that the function and access to resources, it will be the single biggest determination of success. I guess that brings me to this, this question of farmers and, and how you see their world changing and, and potentially not just contextually, how did they get here, but what should they be doing today, given modern politics? And I'm talking, you know, weeks to months out from an election. What should they be doing uh, now to put themselves in the best position for the future, according to, to your worldview? Uh, well, I think, you know, we've just talked about this idea of access to knowledge and resources. Um, and I think, I think um, if, if I was in charge of, uh, of, of a farm or, um, you know, had some sort of, uh, I guess, control over, over you know, how to, how to run a particular business, you know, I'm very separate, I'm a journalist, um, I'm not a farmer, but I would be thinking about how can I get the best access, the best knowledge. I'm lucky I'm a journalist because I can ring people and ask them. Like I just, you know, that's what I did for the book. That was, that was my excuse to ring people and ask them about farming, ask them about environmental service markets, ask them about where government policy is going. So I guess there's a couple of things. On the government front, you know, we're coming into an election. We... Uh, we have political parties, candidates presenting us with um, agricultural policies or not. I haven't seen I haven't seen a lot of them. Um, I'm hoping that someone's thinking hard about this. I've got to say, in the process of writing the book, there weren't a whole lot of people in Canberra that I could get access to in the political realm who were thinking really hard, with one exception. I think David Littleproud is thinking about, you know, environmental services markets, but I hope that the verification system for, um, you know, how to measure those environmental improvements is, um, is robust because I'm really worried it's going to turn into a sports rorts otherwise, you know, it'll just be paid out to mates. It's got to be robust. You've got to prove, you've got to have to prove that, um, you know, you're improving your environment. So that's the one thing on the government end. You, you know, you want to see that they're thinking deeply about some of the issues um, that, uh, you know, I hear a lot of farmers talking about, you know, issues like um, additionality with, with environmental markets, um, you know, what is the best way to improve um, the natural assets, the natural capital on your farm? Um, in the private markets, I'd be, I'd be doing as many webinars, as many seminars, as much uh, additional learning because, um, by the way, you know, the average farmer is, is probably my age, mid-50s to 60 and um, that means they're probably 30 years out of their education, whether it was in agricultural or not. And this is, this is a realm that is changing so quickly. Like I wrote the book, started writing the book 2019, 2020. Um, it's published in 21. And, you know, in the six months that it took from the, la the final drafts to the, to the publication in August, end of August, I felt it almost, you know, there was, there was updates that needed to be done. You would know, Andrew, how fast this stuff is changing. You know, it's like changing by the day. You can read it in the 
about it in the newspapers, in the financial papers, you know, big finance companies, banks, they're changing their products to think about how to incorporate natural capital into um, their product, their financial products, into their loan books. They want to know, you know, people want to want to be able to pay for environmental improvements. We've got this horny kind of subject around offsets um, that is really, you know, it's it can be dangerous, I reckon, if you if you're not up to scratch on that sort of stuff. So you need to be able to access that information. And I know farming culture has come from a place where a lot of these services, educational services at least, and I chart this in the book, you know, we used to get access to an ecologist or a agronomist through uh, our local state agricultural departments. Um, we used to get that those field days um, subsidised by government. That's not happening so much anymore. So you're going to have to find your trusted networks of knowledge to um, understand how fast this is moving. And uh, if you're a small to medium farmer, you've got enough in your day just getting through the day, getting through your job list. And uh, I think farmers are going to have to recognise that they're going to have to pay for some of these services, some of this knowledge and understanding in a way that they may not have paid in the paid for those services in the past. I think that's a, a really big thing. Um, and then I, the, the third element I, I'd say to get up to speed with where things are at is, is just read about the consumer, read about your eater, work out where your products are going. Uh, Vince Heffernan, the um, farmer from Dalton, lamb grower, um, uh, Moorlands lamb, is he talks about, you know, <laughs> farmers, he said, I don't know any other occupation that throws up their hands when their products leave the gate. You know, it's just like, oh, that's done, that harvest is done or that, that those lambs are grown. I'll, I don't care where they're sold to. I'll just go and do the next harvest. And that's understandable because, you know, you have a lot on your plate, pardon the pun, but you, um, you have to... Maybe there are some ways to change it. You know, there's a there's a bit of a um, there's a very kind of the farming farming culture is really split between this. On the one hand, you get this really can do um, attitude, and then on the other, there's a bit of a kind of whinge fest about you know I'm locked into these systems, and I totally feel that locked in uh, system. But there are things that you can change about, about your business or about who you're dealing with. Like Vince, for example, just said, you know, my supermarket's paying me crap prices, goes to his agent, where can, you know, I, I want to get out of this system. Where can I, where can I sell to that's going to change that for me? An agent says, not interested, sorry, go and find someone else. And so he did, and he, he created this other system for himself where he sells wholesale, he doesn't have to do the retail bit, he just people order online and, and that's worked for him. There are a million other examples of, you know, different ways of doing things, but I think it's that having that open mind um, to think about the way you can do things differently is really the key to... Um, to how to survive in the current environment. And some people won't have the energy for that, but um, it's the ones that do have the energy for that that can get collegiate support uh, and resource support um, who are, I think, going to be able to face the future in a, in a, in a more sort of business-ready way. Uh, and, and in a way that's better, frankly, for, for you know, your state of mind. Because otherwise you can really tie yourselves up at, um, in knots and be lying awake at 3 a.m. in the morning worrying about, you know, how you're going to pay your bills. And, um, and it means looking really hard at, at the environment you're dealing with, not just the um, ecosystem environment, but the economic environment, the social environment, the political environment. Um, this is solid gold, Gab. I've really <laughs> so much um 
I, I'm going to abstract with your permission out, out from the farmer and, and talk about how ag is a industry, which is really multiple industries, not one industry, but humor me and, and help um, maybe share your, what are you seeing? Are you seeing consolidation or are you seeing diversification? Are you seeing both? And how does that work? Um, and and a, a follow-on question to that. Um, my old man used to talk about the way that, that it's like exhaling and inhaling the way we centralize and decentralize, centralize and decentralize <laughs> as if we're doing something useful and new each time, but there's this quite recurrent practice. So ag as an industry, are we in this decentralized mode or centralized mode? Are we diversifying or are we consolidating? Where where are you seeing and what are you seeing in this in, within that sort of context? Okay, so um, all of the above is is the is the you know annoying answer to that question, but um, I think we're seeing uh, a consolidation. Uh, the trend for agricultural businesses is is fewer businesses, and that kind of reflects that get big or get out mindset. Um, so there's that happening at the kind of macro level. Um, the consolidation, if you read the Weekly Times top of the pops list uh, for agricultural businesses by value, that consolidation is happening as money moves from, say, very large families, family farming businesses, to corporate businesses, whether they be banks, whether they be superannuation funds, either locally but mostly globally, uh, or, or to these, um, you know, private trading equity equity firms, and and so I think that trend uh, to the to you know the large mostly long-term, you know, think about a super fund, it's getting, it's getting money every week into its bank accounts. It's got very patient capital that can wait for a long time. So it can ride out peaks and troughs, can ride out droughts. Um, they are putting their money into agriculture because around the world, governments uh, and, and private markets are grappling with what happens as, as the world economy adapts to climate change and how, where's the money going to be made? Where, you know, it's, uh, as one of the academics said to me, it's just capital doing its thing, right? It moves around the world trying to find the best return for its home. Now, at the moment, that is agriculture and anyone that um, is familiar with their local real estate Ag real estate prices will be seeing that um, translated into the neighbour's farm. Uh, you know, the prices have, land prices have just gone gangbusters, like more. We, we, we're we so used to seeing uh, stories on the nightly news about Sydney and Melbourne real estate. Well, ag real estate has outshone all of that stuff. You know, the, the capital return is the other thing that's driving, I think, a lot of this, this market. So some of, the, some of the groups, the fund groups that, um, you know, report back to their shareholders every uh, year, you know, it's, it's not so much the ag um, production return that, uh, is is inflating the numbers. It's the it's the value of the asset that's growing underneath their feet, almost to the point where you know whether you get a, a return on production uh, here or there, here or there. It's like you know, look at look at this is a kind of real estate game. This is this is ag version of the block. You know, it's how to increase the asset value as fast as you can. And of course, that's increasing the equity that you hold in your, in your um, asset, in your farm, and that's increasing the borrowing power. So it sort of just goes around, goes around, goes around. Um, so, you know, I think that now I've forget, forgotten the original question. It's, oh, the trends, right? So, um, so there's that corporatization story 
And it's not just corporatization, we're talking big family corporate opera operators as well. So, you know, it's a bit hard to kind of break down that definition between are you a corporate, are you a family when we're talking about, you know, big landholders. At the same time, at the other end of the scale, the small to mids, but particularly the smalls, I see really diversifying. So changing uh, the way they do things, getting increasing um, connection with their eaters, uh, really responding to the market um, buy-in to, to the, that really um, literally the gut connection with the story of regenerative agriculture. And while Regen, Regen Ag is a very, um, it can be a very controversial term depending on, you know, how you define it. My definition is, um, you know, is agriculture that improves, regenerates its environment, you know, while making a return. So, I mean, if, I think if we keep the definition pretty simple, then that smaller end of the farming market is really um, showing that uh, the eaters love this story. They love the idea of where their food come from, comes from. Now, they're not, they're a certain type of buyer in the sense that they, they obviously prioritise where their food comes from and often, mostly, they have the pay packet to pay a little bit extra for that food to pay for um, the farmer to do what they want to do. Um, and that's not always true in the large kind of supermarket um, share of the market where, you know, people just want the cheapest product as fast as they can uh, and they don't have either the bandwidth or the or the priority or the knowledge or the or the cash to to really go down the other route. Um, so that the smaller end is diversifying as well. And I, I guess one of the key themes of the book that I was thinking about was that leaves the middle of farming, maybe multi-generational businesses uh, who've been kind of just ticking along, really kind of hollowing out a bit. So either moving up into that really big end, like how can I borrow as much money as I can to get my farm as big as I can to get those economies of scale to get better buying power so I can drive a cheaper bargain on my inputs. Um, and then you've got the smaller diversified end that is really, really connecting with the consumer and, and, um, and, uh, and improving their, you know, their return that way. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting kind of trend in Australian farming as I see it. And I think, um, it's probably, I think from what I see, um, particularly of UK and US, the same thing is happening. But of course, in the UK, the scale is so much different to Australia. I interviewed James Rebanks, you know, the, the herdy, herdy shepherd. Uh, he's written his own books in English pastoral. Um, and, and he was saying a similar thing. And yet he's working with, you know, 300 acres. So he just can't, he's blown away by Australian scale. He said we could never compete with Australia and yet the middle of Australian farming is going like I feel sometimes like I'm on the bones of my ass. How can I change this so that, you know, I can get a better um, price for what I do that, so that it can be valued? And I think all of that comes back down, whether you're at the big end or the small end, the big end and particularly the corporates are really thinking about how they connect to the consumer. And that comes down, it all comes down to the eater, like the market. What is what does the market want? How am I going to service that market? And it doesn't have to be in the same way as my neighbour services that market, but I've got to find a way to, um, to make this a goer in order to do to fulfil my priorities, whether they're looking after the land better, whether they're feeding fam your family, whatever they are, um, I think everyone's sort of trying to work that out right now. 
this is amazing. Thank you, Gabby. Um, okay, so we're, we're, we're moving across, um, well, back somewhat, <laughs> out of the ag industry and, and into politics. So I want, I want to preface this with a um, maybe an assumption or an inbuilt assumption of mine, which is that the politicians have um, set out for the economy broadly this idea of net zero. And apart from conservation, agriculture seems to be the only industry where they realistically have more sinks than emissions and, and the capacity to affect that. If you're a builder or a road construction company or an airline or, you know, your ability to create sinks uh, to offset your emissions, you're a compelled buyer. Um, so for me, the the idea is that all the farmers are holding all the aces in this race to net zero. So are you seeing a renewed sense of um, uh, power or renewed sense of confidence in farmers as a result of holding all these aces? Or do they know, not even know that they're sitting at the card table and holding the aces? I think it's, yeah, I think a section know that they're, they're holding a lot of aces. Um, I think there's also combined with that confidence, it's kind of a mix of confidence and fear that uh, farmers will have to, will be compelled to really draw down the carbon that the rest of the economy is using. So there's that real fear around, you know, we're going to have to do all the heavy lifting in the economy in order to do this. Um, there's also, I guess, the, the combination of that. So you've got these two opportunities, right? You've got the, the net zero opportunity, which means um, other businesses are going to want to buy um, environmental services to offset their carbon. Um, but on the other hand, there's the, there's the overhang of the regulation. So what is the regulation going to require me to have to do in order to offset my own? So I think there's a real worry in the sector that, you know, people are saying, oh, you can sell all your carbon, but you need some, you can't double count it. So you need some of it to make sure your own businesses are net zero before you, before you start selling that kind of surplus. Uh, and I think people are only just getting their heads around that whole idea and the way the way that plays out I think is going to be really interesting because of course in 20, 2011 12 we had the much um, derided carbon price uh, under Gillard's government and that carbon price would have been a cracking opportunity for farmers <laughs> to sell carbon and be paid for environmental services, not just for food production or fibre production. That was dumped by uh, the coalition, which is largely the, the they're the parties of the of of the farming farming sector largely. Uh, and so we're we're we've sort of um, wasted this time where we're now getting back to the understanding that Right, pricing services, pricing carbon is a way to diversify income as farmers uh, and how we're going to do that um, is, is a moot point. Now, Ross Garno, the economist uh, who did the original one and two Garno reports on climate change, um, obviously did the restructure of the wool industry, very long history in agricultural economics as well as every other economics. He's a bit of a polymath. Um, he said to me, you know, the current situation is farmers have to invest a lot up front with very uncertain conditions when it comes to drawing down carbon. And at the end of the day, they might win something out of a government auction uh, or they might sell to uh, outside um, investors. But he said, you know, the, the price for uh, carbon in Australia is much less than it is, say, in Europe. And he said it's, it's as if you were asked to invest in wool production uh, 
and take the chance that you might get paid at the end of the day and even then we'll pay you a quarter of the, of the price. You know, they're the things that are holding people back in, in when it comes to um, how we think about uh, environmental services. And, uh, and I think until that stuff is ironed out, it's a bit like... Um, the renewables industry has been for the last decade, you know, the uncertainty around the political outcomes has created uncertainty in investment terms. The difference now in the last year or two particularly is we're seeing private markets streak ahead of government, like they're just throwing their hands up and going, I'm not waiting for this regulation, I'm not waiting for a signal, the market's already moving. Um, and so governments have, you know, really need to play catch up you know, in those terms. But it leaves, it leaves farmers, I think, in a really um, invidious position because, again, unless you have access to the knowledge and the resources, it's really hard to work out for yourself, you know, because it's not your specialty job, you know, like you, you've got enough specialty jobs. You need help um, to work uh, how this environmental market plays out, I think, and really do your homework, both, you know, in a legal sense, in a financial sense, and what your obligations might be in the future, because these are long contracts, a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, this is um, great uh, over the long term. Um, I guess we, we I need to check time. Yes, we are running a bit close but we've still got some more time if we if we look at the future therefore you know we've got this modern economy today and we've got the future coming you know i'm not sure that we're going backwards in terms of our um economy to a, an agrarian type of uh, uh economy uh, even if the the farmers are holding all of the aces i don't think we'll have kings of grass castles exactly again but i mean that's my view. I'd like to hear from somebody who's spent 30 years talking to politicians and farmers and writing books about that to understand whether actually, yeah, we might go back to something akin to an agrarian kind of um, oh, Kings of Grass Castles kind of era where farmers were landed gentry and, and kind of held a large amount of the GDP uh, at least within their control for the Australian population. Is, is that the future that you see or do you see farmers with their ass hanging out of their jeans and they're either now corporatized or they're selling direct to a local food market and, that, and that's about the scale and there's nothing left in the middle? A friend told me uh, from Victoria that um, the only Rolls-Royce dealer outside of a metropolitan centre used to be in Hamilton, Victoria, in the 50s, you know, during the wool boom. And it's a standing joke amongst myself and the farmer about, you know, how he's going to make me a wool princess. It hasn't <laughs> happened yet. Um, I don't think we're going back to kings in grass castles or queens in grass castles. Um, I think, though, that we could go back to an economic model that, is closer to a kind of squatocracy, but that is large tracts of land um, that are owned or controlled by one entity um, for the purposes of diverse incomes like food, fibre production and environmental services. And the imperative, I think, in the exercise that I undertook in, in writing the book was that I think that would be a bad thing if we, say, dropped from 80,000 or so agricultural businesses down to 8,000 or even 800. You know, I'd, I just don't think it would serve the country well to have less competition amongst farmers, um, to have more market control in agriculture in the same way that we've seen the supermarkets drop down to, you know, duopolies or oligopolies in the same way as we have seen some, you know, industries like um, poultry uh, become monopsonies where there's only one buyer and you, you know, you slash the, the, 
the throat of the business next to you in order to produce the chicken for the lowest possible price. I just don't think any of that serves a long-term economy. And I think if we've learnt one thing from this pandemic that we've all been stuck in for the last two years, it is that diversity is the key. Short and medium supply chains are just as important as long global supply chains. You can't rely um, for stuff that we require, food being the number one, um, from other countries that where you can't control. You know, you talk about CBH, um, uh, you know, in terms of wheat, wheat uh, sales. The, the only um, uh, similar structure on the eastern seaboard is the rice board. It's the only sort of hangover of the old kind of pr production boards. And we saw in, the, in 2020, um, I think heading into spring, uh, you know, the country go very low on rice supplies because uh, we, we've always imported a fair bit of rice from Vietnam when our own rice growers aren't, aren't growing rice. And Vietnam said, you know, closed its borders to rice exports because they said, you know, we want to feed our population. Absolutely fair enough. So, you know, you can lull yourself um, and economists, you know, I drive economists mad when I talk about this stuff. The, the, <laughs> some of the feedback I've had on the book from one or two ag economists, they, I, I think I just made their brain explode because they were so annoyed with me not, not following the economic orthodoxy. But you can, you can get, you can buy stuff in for the lowest possible price, absolutely, and it can work for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But long term, if you're, if you let, say, your milk, your dairy farmers go and say, I can buy it from cheaper from New Zealand any day of the week, will there come a time, like, say, in a pandemic, where somehow that supply gets cut off or you have to pay a higher price even than you were paying your own dairy farmers? Like, have you won in the long term? I would say no. We, not just food. We saw it with personal protective equipment. You know, suddenly everyone, every brewer and, you know, distiller in Australia was making hand sanitizer because we don't make that stuff. You know, um, surgical masks, all of that stuff. You know, we don't make stuff anymore. We made that decision as a country um, through those years of economic deregulation where manufacturing could be done so much cheaper uh, in other countries, and we could just buy it back and really specialise uh, in one or two things. Well, it's the same in farming. Um, we are very good producers of steak sandwiches. We make we we grow a lot of beef, and we grow a lot of wheat. Um, and maybe that's why we have democracy sausages at election times. But but if that's the only stuff we're going to make, it's not a very diverse base. Um, to come off. And uh, there was a really good report by Stephen Bartos, who's a senior public servant, that was asked to look at food distribution, food supply and resilience after the Queensland floods. And, and Queensland discovered that because of the duopoly um, supermarkets and they had cut down their distribution centres to massive distribution centres, but only, you know, a, a very small number of them, you actually can't get food out when there's a challenge to that. And, you know, it's, the, it's not just the one-off um, disaster or crisis or, or supply chain upset like a bushfire or a flood. Increasingly with climate change, we're going to see combinations. So we, we saw in 2020 bushfires that basically went for the whole of summer straight into a flood, straight into a pandemic. And it's those kind of one-two punches, I think, that, we have to reassess economic um, orthodoxy and say, okay, that might have worked really well and made us really rich for 20, 30, 40 years. But is this a time to reassess and just mark our homework and say, okay, what is the imperative for the next 40 years or 50 years? What is the imperative when my, um, you know, when my grandchild is 30? It, I, I think it, if, if economists 
And some agricultural advocacy is so defensive that it can't even consider the answer to these questions, then we're not a very open-minded people. And really that's what the book was about. It's about putting stuff out there. I'm just a garden variety journalist, right? Arts degree, very, very ordinary in terms of um, knowledge, but I can, I can access people with knowledge. And, and it was really just like thinking through, okay, if I had to think this through as an individual or a business, what are some of the conclusions I would come to? And those conclusions are that you have to start pricing in the true production cost of food and that you have to have more diverse and more resilient supply chains in the delivery of that food. And that you have to, as a country, think about how you're going to deal with your landscape when 60% of the landscape is controlled by farmers. You have to think about what are the best systems for those for that landscape care. Which, you know, how do we want to do this? We can't run it down like it's some, you know, economic asset that we don't care about. It's not, landscape is not disposable. Landscape. Our farming businesses rely on healthy landscapes. And if you can't look up out for that number one asset, that number one ecosystem, then you may as well give the game away. That is so powerful. Um, if, I just want to put that down. If we can't look after our land... If we can't look after our land um, as a healthy ecosystem you know, we may as well give the game away. Someone, someone likened it to a, a very clever man for, who used to work at the Australian Bureau of Statistics said, you know, not thinking about your natural assets is like driving a car without having a fuel gauge. Like you, haven't, you, you don't know whether you're going to stop tomorrow or in 10 years' time or in 30 years' time. Like why would you not look out for your natural assets? It's just... it. it defies you know logic it is uh yeah it, it takes me to that jfk thing uh, where he was like yeah gdp it measures everything except that which matters you know and kate rayworth says similar with her yeah. donut economics and i was really uh you know one of the reasons i didn't sleep listening to your book uh, was when you highlighted that we, we've taken the lowest cost mentality, the consumer viewpoint when doing economics assessments as opposed to the employed view or the, the job. Uh, and, and, yeah, we do, as farmers, have a role to play in educating economists about the world that they inhabit. And, and perhaps there's um, some lessons there. I want to also say that economists are usually going to be urbanites and they're always going to be eaters. And so maybe to finish our conversation today, uh, Gab, can I ask you, what are you seeing as the trends uh, and the, the leverage points that farmers can use to connect with urbanites and, and eaters? I say urbanites because... Um, I might be in the minority, but I see an increasing number of city people interested in their food, but interested in the environment, interested in the, um, the, the role of farmers. And they are, you know, casually interested, but sometimes uh, we're seeing them put their money where their mouth was. In, in our recent crowdfunding for Regen Digital, 80% of those 145 investors were urbanites. And when the oh. round closed, when the round closed, all the farmers went, oh, I wish I could have jumped on and, and then uh, put in their bids to say, oh, I, you know, I was there, I tried to get in. But they were, they were, you know, maybe deliberately late. I don't know. But it was the urbanites who were going, oh, my God, this is a commercial opportunity. It hits my environmental knee bone. And um, it's important to, to me and society, so I see a long-term in it. Whereas farmers, I think, yeah, in that case, uh, didn't put their money where their mouth was because they're like, well, 
I'm going to have to produce the environmental goods and services. I'm going to be a customer and member of the mutual. But from your perspective, what are you seeing as the themes or the leverage points for urbanites and eaters that farmers need to connect with? Yeah, I, I just want to say, um, you know, often urbanites, as you call them, or city people, or, you know, that can often get a bad rap. And um, every drought, you see this kind of outpouring of um, sympathy and support, financial support, emotional support for farmers. So I don't think we should, um, and you're not suggesting, but, you know, I, I see it here are a fair few country people like running city people down. And, and I have taken the piss, I must admit, in a couple of pieces um, early on. Uh, but I, I think it's way more complex now. And so I think some of the biggest supporters of farmers live in the city. Um, they're either uh, running businesses that they really think uh, services that connection need um, they are or they're working in agriculture from a city you know a lot of the uh, the people working in agriculture work in city urban services that service farmers so there's this whole group there I think that are ready to to buy into um, the the kind of farmer story and investments like yours um, so they're the ones that are kind of ready to, they're already attuned to connect or connecting themselves. Then I think there's this other crowd that um, if you talk to them or, or spark um, their imagination, they will, they, they, they're very receptive to it. And then I think there's a third crowd that have either too much on their plate or don't give a shit for whatever reason. And not everyone, I mean, despite the title of the book, you know, a lot of people have got a lot of stuff going on. Um, you know, I, farmers um, are wealthy in a lot of ways uh, in terms of what they have, um, not just, you know, financially, but, you know, so there's always going to be this crowd that doesn't doesn't kind of plug into what's happening either at landscape or ag production. Um, but I think the interesting conversation for me in the book was this was Mike Lee, who's a food futurist, and he's talking about how the food food um, is starting to inspire what's happening in politics. In that um, politics has become very polarized. You know, it used to be that um, your political leaning wasn't such a thing. Now, you know, I think the um, the Pew surveys show that you know people <laughs> this is a survey that came out of america um you know people used to be it used to be guess who's coming to dinner you know the sydney poitier film uh, about bringing a, a, a daughter bringing a black boyfriend home and that horrified the whole family well now if you bring home someone from a different political persuasion it's just like oh my god you can't marry that person they they're a member of that political party well that's starting to happen for food right so food has become the way that uh, younger generations and some older generations starting to signal their values you know am i a pescatarian, vegetarian, carnivore, um, gluten-free, locavore, 100-mile diet, you know, all of those uh, tribes are starting to separate and that, and you, you can find your tribe online the way we've found our political tribes online um, through social media, you do that through food. And so thinking about those food identities, I think, um, is really worth worth it for the farmer, and and though you can't sort of directly um, tap into um, one of those identities, I think the big lesson from that sort of the food identity story is transparency. So, as farmers have been reluctant to open up their processes to um, to eaters consumers uh, we've seen you know the 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 really kind of angst-ridden debates around animals australia and 
and footage that uh, has been taken on farms um, without permission. And that has all, you know, been such a fraught, fraught debate. But in broader terms, what I'm talking about transparency is, you know, the, the technologies now that are, are going to allow the consumer to see where the lamb has come from, um, to, to scan their phone and find the story of the farmer. Uh, whatever that farmer chooses to do, whether they're the biggest conventional chickpea grower that grew the lentil burger or whether they're the, the regen farmer that grew the lamb uh, in, the, in the tray. Um, so that trend towards transparency, I think, is something that farmers will not be able to avoid. I think that that's where it's going to go with supply chains. And, and that can happen. That's not just at a long global supply chain aspect. Um, although you will have technology will be able to produce that. I mean, that's also the story of the small farm farmer who connects at the farmer's market. The, you, there's no bigger transparency than the guy, the farmer standing behind the stall in the tent, you know, talking to the customer that's going to eat their lamb chops. So um, I think that transparency is the, is the big key in terms of where, where the urbanites and eaters are going. And um, I don't think it's going to be something that you can avoid, even if you want to uh, keep your head under the blankets. Um, it's, it's just, it's already out there. And I think it's going to just keep that transparency imperative is going to keep increasing. Uh, Gabby, I totally agree. We've been saying <clears throat> around Regen Digital that you're, as a farmer, going to need a digital twin. You'll be compelled either through markets or green tape to show your practices, to um, declare your environmental assets. And um, the difference maybe between Regen Digital, which is controlled by Regen Farmers Mutual, and something that comes out of Microsoft or Google will be that you as the farmer own your data and control your data and you can align your data with others locally to, you know, uh, get some market power. Whereas the data that you're going to be providing because of being compelled by green tape or markets, uh, if you don't own that, that market power will, may well and historically data has been against farmers um, and for the other people in the supply chain. So I think it's a really great point to make. And it might be given that we've already blown through an hour and I really appreciate you doing that for us, Gabby. But I might pull up there and, and, and just say a wholeheartedly, thank you so much. That for me was an amazing experience and I, I hope we can do it again. Uh, and yeah, I really enjoyed that. Thank you, Gabby. Thanks, Wardy. Cheers. And um, for all of our farmers who've watched this and uh, are listening, we will be back each week with a new video. Uh, next week, we're talking with Joshua Gilbert, a Waramai man. We're going to talk to him about uh, Indigenous agriculture and how they're missing from the discussion, even though that the Indigenous uh, land title accounts for 40% of Australia's landmass. So we need, as much as we need farmers to be involved in this discussion, we need Indigenous Australia to be involved in this discussion too. So join us next week if you can. Thank you once again, Gabby, for your time and um, look forward to chatting to you again in the future. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye, Gab. Bye.